0: You ever been reading through a book of the Bible and you arrive at a passage that just seems out of place? Maybe it's uh, in a narrative and the storyline sort of just shifts and, and breaks and you're just thinking to yourself, something seems misplaced here. Why is this here? This doesn't seem to be where this needs to be. That happens on occasion when you're reading through the Word and Sometimes when when you come across those passages that seem strangely placed, when you do some digging and some contextual study, you discover why the author says what he does when he says it and where he says it. Well, I suspect that if you read ahead this week, you probably had a few questions. So far, we've been studying through Luke, We've been looking at the birth of Jesus and His early life and His preparation for ministry, and then all of a sudden, rather abruptly, Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus. It seems strange where it's placed at the end of Luke 3, but that's where Luke places it. Why? I mean, it would make more sense for it to be at the beginning, right? Like it is in Matthew, in Matthew 1.1. He just goes right into the genealogy of Jesus. Well, believe it or not, there is a reason for this that we're going to discuss this morning. And as we answer questions about Jesus' genealogy, we're also going to answer another question that many have when reading this list, and that's this. What can I possibly learn from this list of names. Have you ever thought that when you're reading a list of names in Scripture? What what is there for me here? What can I possibly learn here? So why is the list placed where it is in this book, and what do we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? Believe it or not, we're going to discuss both this morning, and believe it or not, we learn quite a bit from this passage. So if you have your Bibles, you're not there yet, get there. Luke chapter 3. We are continuing our study through Luke. We're calling this series, Jesus, the Savior of the World. And today we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 38, and we're going to be talking about what we learn from the genealogy of Jesus. First, let me read this text for you, and then we will discuss the significance of it, okay? So look at it with me, beginning in verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Samin. There's going to be a quiz at the end, so pay attention, all right? The son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmarim. The son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mattath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Sala, the son of Nahashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And What we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17, there should be something glaringly obvious to you when you read Luke chapter 3 verses 23 through 38, and that is that Matthew's list and Luke's list are different, okay? Now, now don't let that worry you, okay? know that there are biblical scholars who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture who are well aware of these differences. Some of you are like, somebody needs to call them and tell them, right? No, they know, all right, they know. Don't be bothered by this. There is a perfectly good explanation for this, and it's the same reason why my list and your list is different. Mine reads like this. Graham Todd Hale, son of Truman Wayne Hale, son of Truman Preston Hale, son of Joseph Thomas Hale. And it also reads, Graham Todd Hale, son of Truman Wayne Hale, son of Lloyd Lester Turney, son of Thomas Lafayette Turney. Why are those two lists different? Because one goes through my father's side and the other goes through my mother's side. Same is true of these two lists. Matthew gives us the list in descending order, starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. Luke gives it to us in ascending order, beginning with Jesus, going past Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Matthew gives us the royal line of Jesus through Joseph, and Luke gives us the bloodline of Jesus through Mary, which fits the emphasis of both gospel writers. Remember, we've said this before. The gospel writers do things with what they say. They are doing something here with what they are saying. We see here Matthew establishes Jesus' royal lineage for his Jewish audience. Luke... However, from the beginning is highlighting the fact that Jesus was miraculously conceived and virgin-born. He came, as scholars say, Ec Maria, out of Mary, solely from the mother. Now, some argue with this argument that says that these are two separate lineages because Mary is not mentioned in either one. Instead, Luke mentions Jesus' father once again, like Matthew. He mentions Joseph again. But the problem with saying this is Joseph's lineage in Luke is because it's different, right, from, from Matthew. I believe the reason Mary is not mentioned in Luke chapter 3 is because she has already been designated by Luke as the mother of Jesus in his gospel. That's implied, that's understood here. And also, it was usual practice when listing one's genealogy to mention the name of the Father, which is what I just did a moment ago when I shared with you my genealogy. I mentioned my Father twice. What Luke is saying in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, is that Jesus is the son of Joseph, the grandson of Healy, Mary's father. You with me? You got it? You tracking with me? Okay. Strap on your seatbelt. We're going we're gonna to do some running here, all right? So, Matthew gives us the royal line in Matthew 1. Luke gives us the bloodline in Luke 3. And if you want some more reading on this, we have it for you in the foyer. There's an article by John MacArthur on this. If you want some extra reading, be sure and grab that before you leave. Now, question we need to come back to is why? Why does Luke give us... Jesus' genealogy here. What is the purpose of him giving us this list of names? Why is this list different than the other list? Why does Luke give us Mary's family, trace it back to Adam, while Matthew gives us Joseph's family and traces it back to Abraham? Well, we've talked about this a bit already, but bear with me. It deserves a second look. Luke, again, is doing something with what he's saying. When we studied Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, which we have done, I shared with you, Matthew is writing, again, to a Jewish audience. He is writing to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Therefore, he, he traces his lineage back through David to Abraham because his main point in that passage in Matthew chapter 1 is that Jesus is God's man, his promised Messiah. He is God's forever king. In the tribe of Judah, he is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. That's why Matthew leads with, in his gospel, Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Luke is making a few of the points that Matthew makes as well, but he goes even further, tracing Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, past Adam to God. He says he is the son of Adam, the son of God, which I think is his main emphasis there because he's about to go into the temptation in the wilderness. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but Luke is doing something very specific here with what he is saying. Over the past few weeks, we have been talking about the, the, the ministry of John the Baptist and the beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we have said there is some mystery, there have been some mystery around who Jesus is. Some thought John was the promised Messiah to come, but but he points them toward Jesus. He says he is the promised Messiah, the one sent by God to bring salvation to the lost. He is our great king priest. He is the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. At Jesus' baptism, those looking on, they learn more about Christ. We looked at that last week. They learn that he is God's son, and they learn that from God the Father himself because he speaks it from the heavens down to the people. He says, this is my Son. Well, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke takes a brief pause here to focus in on Jesus' family to teach us a bit more about him and the work that he has been sent to accomplish. We get great insight into the person and the work of Jesus from this list. And and listing out Jesus' family here to get a better understanding of Jesus should really hit home to us Southerners, right? Because how often have you asked, who's your people? You ever ask that question? Who's that boy's daddy? Anybody ever ask that? Who's her mama? Why do we ask those kind of questions? We learn a lot about a person by their people. Same is true with Jesus. We learn a lot about Jesus by studying his people. First thing we learn about the genealogy of Jesus is this. Jesus is truly human. You see, Luke returned to this again and again. He is truly human. He became a man. He lived here on earth. He had a family. He was born a Nazarene, raised by Nazarenes. He aged. We're told in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of them. So on and so on. Jesus became a man. He was a son. He lived on earth. He grew and matured. He aged. He began his ministry at 30 years of age. He is man, flesh and blood. I read somewhere where someone said, He is no Greek demigod ascending in some sort of spiritual form and only appearing to be fleshly. He is truly human, flesh and blood. Just like you and me. That's why Luke gives us a whole string of son of, son of, son of, son of, right? There was a time in history when God the Son took on flesh and as Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled among us. He became one of us. and It's very important that he did become one of us truly man. Him becoming a man and living a human life on this earth is very important because Jesus came to represent us. He came to live the life we failed to live in order to give us the life we could never have otherwise because we're sinners. If Jesus did not become fully one of us, we do not have a representative, we might as well close these doors up and go home because we're without a hope in the world if Jesus did not become truly man We'll talk more about that in a moment We also learn from the genealogy of Jesus, you know, it's coming next He's truly divine Look at the end of the list Not only is Jesus the son of Abraham the son of David son of Adam verse 38. He is the son of God this is an important message that Luke is trying to make early on in this book which is why he tells of Mary's encounter with the angels about her son and the shepherds encounter with angels and the angels song and Mary and Joseph's encounter with Simeon and Anna and Jesus in the temple and John's message of Jesus and the great declaration of God at Jesus's baptism Luke by telling us all of these stories jamming them in here in the first three chapters he is showing us that while Jesus is truly human he is no normal human Jesus has been sent by God his lineage goes all the way back to him he is God the son while he makes it clear that he's truly man he is the son of Adam he makes it crystal clear he is truly the son of God and like the truth about Jesus' humanity, that's important for us to understand when it comes to our salvation. So is this, that he is truly God. only. An infinite God can become sin and endure God's wrath eternally on our behalf, in our place. Only God can conquer sin and death through His life and death and resurrection. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can make a way for us to enter back into a right relationship with God. Notice what else we learn. We learn from Matthew's list, that Jesus is God's forever king. Look at verse 30. The son of Judah. Verse 31. The son of David. Well, Matthew gives us the royal lineage, Luke gives us the bloodline of Jesus and shows no matter which way you slice it, Jesus is the son of David. What was promised to David, you remember? Look at it up on the screen. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promised to David to put his son on the throne, a son who would rule forever and ever. And you know and I know that's not ultimately fulfilled in Solomon, right? As glorious and as majestic as his rule was, it was not ultimately fulfilled in him it was not fulfilled in any of the other kings from this dynasty they each reigned for a time they died and their power was transferred to someone else now the fulfillment of 2nd Samuel 7 is Jesus Christ now there's one other thing that's extremely interesting about Jesus's lineage here that I want you to see I want to share this with you this is extra but it's worth you coming in today watch this as we said earlier The lineages given in Matthew and Luke are unique and different. The one in Matthew is the royal line through Jesus' father. So in Matthew's gospel, he shows us the legal descent of Jesus as the king of Israel. Now, the reason I say legal is because Jesus had no earthly father biologically. Joseph was his father legally, but not biologically because he was miraculously conceived. And virgin-born so though Jesus is the legal heir to the kingdom through his father he did not have ties to most of those individuals in Matthew's list biologically he did however have blunt ties to David through his mother as we learn in Luke chapter 3 you see David had a number of kids one of whom was Nathan. Luke shows us here in this list that Mary was a descendant of David's son, Nathan. So Jesus had blood ties to David through Mary. He had royal ties to David legally through Joseph. You with me? Let me tell you why this is important. As we read about the royal family in Matthew chapter 1, there is a name that doesn't jump out at us, but it really, really should And that is the name Jeconiah, also known as Coniah, also known as Jehoiakim. Look at Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 28. This is what we're told about Jeconiah. Beginning in verse 28. Is this man Coniah a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Now, the name Coniah here is also, in some of your translations... It's translated Jehoiakim, and that is Jeconiah. The the name Jehoiakim is another name for Jeconiah. So he's talking about Jeconiah here. Skip down to verse 30. Thus says the Lord. I've got it underlined up here. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David. Underline none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, folks, that's a problem. If the covenant God made to David promises a future forever king and Jeconiah's offspring is cursed and none of his offspring are allowed to sit on the throne of David, then how in the world can we have a future Messiah? Watch this. Because Jesus is virgin born. He's not blood-related to Jeconiah. He's legally in the royal line, but has no biological ties to him. So Jesus has no biological ties to the royal line, yet he is legally a royal, and he is also still a descendant of David by blood through his mother. Wow, right? Is that not incredible? That's what I call perfect fulfillment. Isn't it incredible how how God just guards every single detail. That's amazing. Jesus is God's forever king in the line of kings, no matter which way you slice it. Amazing. We also learn from the list of names that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Look at verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham... Remember, God made a promise to Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac and Jacob that he was going to make a great nation out of them. And through this nation, all nations will be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the blessing to all nations. He comes in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to accomplish salvation for all who believe. On Him, It is through him that all nations of the earth are blessed. We're witnessing that blessing of the nations day after day in reports on the mission field. So Luke is, is showing his audience by referring to Jesus as the son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. That Jesus is the promised one, God's man, his Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the promises made to these men. Now get this, this is key as well. This is worth you coming in. Unlike in the first century, Jews today have lost all record of their tribal ancestry. They have. They can't can't hardly trace it at all. Completely gone. There is no one today who can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are descendants of Judah or descendants of Benjamin. That's been lost. Not true in Christ's day. No one in the first century disputed or questioned his lineage. It's it's verifiable. You know, there are certain Jews today who aren't even looking for a Messiah to come. They don't see it as even being necessary. But there are certain Orthodox Jews who have rejected Christ, and they're still looking for another. Now, I want you to get this. This is important. If anybody today comes claiming to be the Messiah... By being a descendant of Judah in the household of David they're never going to be able to prove it Jesus is the last verifiable claimant to David's throne no one could come today and lay any believable claim to it and we don't need them to because he is the promised Messiah notice what else we learn from this lineage a lot here right we learn from this list Like we learned last week at Jesus' baptism, that Jesus has come to identify with sinners. There are some real rascals in Matthew's list and in Luke's list. We don't have time to look at all of them in depth, but let's look at a few very familiar people. There were some faithful yet flawed individuals. You got Adam. He was faithful to be fruitful and populate the earth. That's what God told him to do. He did that, but he also sinned against God and brought about the fall of man. Noah was a redeemer of the human race, but a drunkard. Abraham was the father of God's nation of people, and while he showed great faith, remember Paul highlights this faith in in Romans chapter 4 that he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, he also took matters into his own hands trying to protect his family and fulfill God's promises in his own strength and messes up royally. David was the king of God's people, a man after God's own heart, but a murderer and an adulterer. Boaz was married to Ruth. He was a, she was a Moabite, a race of people that was spawned from incest. Judah had dealings with prostitutes. Jacob was a deceiver and a thief. And Terah, the father of Abraham, was an idolater. What on earth are these individuals doing in the line of Christ? What do we learn from this flawed list of people? Same lesson we learned at Jesus' baptism. Why was Jesus baptized by John the Baptist who was baptizing with the baptism of repentance? Was it because Jesus had something to repent of? No, it's because we do. He's our only rescue. We need him to identify with us. He was baptized to identify with us in order to save us. Same is true with him landing in this unlikely lineage. Jesus' appearance in this lineage and the one in Matthew should remind us of this truth, that Jesus has identified with sinners. While he was without sin, he comes from a long line of sinners, and him being one of us, it reminds us that he has identified with us in order to save us. He became one of us to live the perfect life for us, identified with us in order to bring us into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father through Him. He came to provide rescue for idolaters, cheaters, and thieves. He came to forgive and restore drunkards and adulterers and murderers. That's what we're reminded of here. We're also reminded that Jesus Is the second Adam he's the second Adam we're told he is the son of Adam in this verse and in the passage we're gonna look at next week we're reminded of this Jesus is the second Adam our perfect representative who came to fix what he broke, to reverse the curse. Whereas the the first Adam failed and sinned and fell and plunged us all into sin and separation and misery, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, succeeded. He stood strong. He made a way for us to be forgiven and restored. We're going to be discussing Luke's account of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. This event is significant. It is meant to take us back to the beginning, to take us back to the garden. There's a lot of contrasts that take place between these two stories. The first Adam was tempted in paradise and he fell. The second Adam is tempted in the wilderness and he succeeds. Adam has access to all the fruit from all the trees that anyone can eat. He can eat from all of them but one. And Satan tempts him with the forbidden fruit, and Adam gives in. Jesus is going without food for 40 days. Satan tempts him to turn stones into bread, and Jesus resists. Satan tempted Adam once, and he fell. Satan tempts Christ at least three times, probably more, and he succeeds. He stands strong. Christ did what Adam failed to do. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he reverses the curse of Adam's sin. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. This is your passage for the week. Look at what Paul says here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Christ accomplished this work through his life death, and resurrection. This list of names here, it reminds us of this great work. We are reminded that while the the first Adam failed and through his sin came condemnation to all, Christ the second Adam succeeded, and through him many will be made righteous who believe on him. Which leads us right in to the final point here. We've learned a lot from this genealogy We've learned that Jesus is truly human. He's truly divine. He's God's forever king. He's God's promised Messiah. He's the second Adam. His coming as the son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, son of God reminds us that God the Son has come to identify with sinners. And last point, he has come to provide salvation for sinners. Jesus has come to provide salvation for sinners. There are some incredible names on Luke and Matthew's list. Powerful kings, faithful deliverers, godly instruments for God's kingdom work, but we are reminded in this list that even the godliest of saviors in biblical history are broken. Remember that when you read your Old Testament. They're broken. The godliest of saviors are broken. You ever been reading about one of the men of God in the Old Testament, and man, they're going strong, and then they just mess up royally, and you're like, what on earth? I was reading that when we were studying Joshua. You know, Joshua's doing good, and then he doesn't uh, uh, consult with the Lord, and he, and he makes a, an allegiance with a nation that he shouldn't have. He didn't consult the Lord. Joshua messed up right there. Broken. The godliest of saviors are broken. Noah, broken. Abraham, broken. Moses, broken. Joshua, broken. David, broken. Broken vessels, broken saviors over and over and over and over and over and over again. We're reminded of this. Noah's not going to cut it, folks. Abraham's not going to cut it. Moses is not going to cut it. David is not going to cut it. Salvation is not going to be accomplished by these broken saviors. That is why Christ came. He came as mankind's only hope of salvation. The best mankind has to offer does not come close to cutting it. That is why the Son of God became the Son of Adam. He came to do what we could never do and what Adam failed to do. That's your truth for the week. The Son of God became the Son of Adam to do what man could never do and what Adam failed to do. He came, he was our perfect representative and accomplished our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. The question I want to leave you with today is this. Are you trusting in Christ's and work alone for your salvation today? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are all in one of two camps spiritually. We are either sons of Adam by birth or sons of God by faith in Christ. If You're not trusting in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for your salvation. You're still being represented by the first Adam and are condemned. That's Paul's point. The only hope of salvation for any of us is for us to forsake our old sin-stained life we were conceived with, we inherited by birth through Adam and place our faith in Christ alone so that we can be made righteous. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Christ for salvation, I urge you right here, right now, today, forsake your sin Bow the knee to King Jesus and be saved today. Would you pray with me?